we come today to the last part in our series in Ruth, which um, it feels like it's absolutely flown by. I know it's only four weeks, but it feels like they've just like, woof, we're done. Uh, and so I want to give us a very quick recap of where we're up to so far in this true story, this account of the life of Ruth and Naomi and their family uh, and how God provided for them and intervened in their circumstances. Uh, and so we're going to recap for those who maybe haven't been with us for the whole series or maybe you missed one or two. Uh, so you're up to speed on what's going on. Uh, and then we're going to dive into chapter four. We'll read the whole chapter together uh, and then we will seek to unpack it and see uh, what there is to learn from it for us today. So, Ruth, this true story that occurred about a thousand years before the birth of Christ charts the events for a particular family at a time probably of the largest, most prolonged, sustained failure of God's people to seek him. Uh, in, in a period that we have recorded for us in the book of Judges. Uh, and Ruth chapter 1 tells us at the beginning that this took place in the time of the Judges. Uh, and Judges charts, and Ruth takes place in this context, charts the people of God time after time after time rebelling against him, turning their backs on him, uh, and God seeking to draw them back to himself and then continuing to rebel against him. And we read in the book of Judges that, that each generation was worse than the one that preceded it. It was this downward spiral of rebellion against God. And, and I think when you look at society today, and I, I think you could very confidently and very comfortably say that society is and has been for some time in the UK... In, in a downward spiral, a degenerative spiral of rebellion against God. We're in a state as a nation. And that was very much the context that this occurred in. Now, as part of that, there was a famine in the land we read about in chapter 1. It was part of God's judgment, actually, on his people's rejection of him. In a bid to draw them back to him, that they would seek his face again. He sent famine, and in response to this famine in the promised land, a man called Elimelech and his wife Naomi left the promised land. They left the place that God had provided for them, and they went in search of food elsewhere. They settled in the country of Moab, the Moabites, and there in their rebellion against God and their walking away from his provision for them, tragically, Elimelech dies, leaves Naomi in Moabite, in Moab, as a widow with their two sons, Marlon and Kilian. As we discovered a few weeks ago when we started this series, their names are not without significance. <laughs> Marlon being sickly and Kilion being wasting away. Vivid names that summed up the, the, 
the state of the people of Israel at that time and the state of her family. And then these two sons, sickly and wasting away, marry two Moabite wives. They take for themselves wives from Moab, not Israelites, not from the people of God. They marry outside of the people of God, something which God had told his people not to do. And not to do for very good reason. Because when you marry into another culture, the the temptation and the challenge to be led away to worship other gods, the gods of that culture, is strong. And we see it all too often in Scripture. God's people marrying with those from other nations and turning to worship the Baals, turning to worship the foreign gods. And actually we don't find out whether that happened for Marlon and Killian or not. But we know that they were so entrenched, actually, in their rejection of God's provision. They, they took it to, to who they married, to. It affected all of their decisions. And then, tragically, these sons both die, leaving now Naomi with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, Now, we're moving fairly quickly through the timeline of the story. Naomi hears, after her son's death, that actually the famine has ended in the promised land. That Bethlehem, the house of bread, where there was famine and there was no bread, the people had returned to God in some way and God had visited his people and provided for them again. There was a harvest once more in the house of bread. And so she resolves to return to Bethlehem, and Orpah decides she's not going. She's going to stick where she is in Moab. She returns to her parents, but Ruth follows Naomi to Bethlehem. And if you can remember, like three weeks back, we looked at that account as Ruth makes that decision to go with Naomi, that it, it wasn't simply loyalty to her mother-in-law that led her to go to Bethlehem, that she clearly had for herself turned to the Lord, to God, the God of Israel. She uses, when she says, uh, your God will be my God, your people, my people, your God will be my God, she uses the word Yahweh, the Lord is the, the name that the Israelites used for the Lord their God. It's significant that she used that term. She turned to him. And so she goes. Now, on the surface, this return seems like a crazy idea. A pair of widows, one of whom in particular was a foreigner. Between them, they had no guarantee of provision. There may have been a harvest in the land, but whether they would get any share in it was seriously unknown, particularly for Ruth. But God, as we've seen over the last few weeks, provided for them amazingly, right? Provided for them incredibly through a man named Boaz in particular, who was a a landowner. He was an honorable, godly man who took care of Ruth and ensured that they were provided for. He just so happened to be. And if you remember that phrase 
in chapter 2 that Ruth went out to work in the field to try and glean some grain. It said, it just so happened to be the field of Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi, on her husband's side. There's no coincidence there, but the sovereign hand of God at work to provide for these two ladies. And one of the major themes of this short story, which really finds its climax today, is that of redemption, in particular outworked through Boaz. And we're going to see a bit more today about what it means for him to have brought redemption to them and what that in turn means for us today. So are we okay on where we are with the story? We've got two widows. Chapter 1 starts very bleak, lots of death. It's really not good. The good news you need to know up front is that chapter 4 sees the reversal of everything that goes wrong in chapter 1. There's a symmetry to the book of Ruth. And all that is lost in chapter 1 is restored in abundance in chapter 4. And so today's a good news one, which is always encouraging, right? So we're going to read together. We'll read the whole of the chapter, uh, and then we'll begin to dig into it. So... Boaz, this is the last bit of context, maybe I forgot that I probably need to give before we jump in. Ruth has been working in Boaz's field. He becomes aware, he is made aware of the fact that he is a family redeemer and that he could make permanent, lasting provision for Ruth. In fact, actually, he could take Ruth as his bride and care for her in that way and actually if they have children ensure that the lineage of her father-in-law and her husband the line of Elimelech would continue Uh, and so Boaz is going to see and we'll find out today what happens if he can do that for them now there is there is a complicating factor in that there is another man who is also a relative. And he is a closer relative than Boaz and a younger man, and therefore, on the surface, a more suitable redeemer for Ruth. He's closer in relation to Elimelech's family, and he's younger. Why not? So that's where we jump in. Boaz goes to meet this younger man. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gateway from verse 1 and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of who Boaz had spoken came by. Boaz is at the gate because that's where business was done in those days. It's like a public court. And that's the scene that we're going to see played out now. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. Boaz creates this kind of court scene. He chooses ten elders as witnesses to what's going to take place, to their discussion that's going to happen here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, to this other man, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. 
If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Okay, what's going on here? Boaz knows this guy's a closer relative. He has first refusal over this land and over Ruth, which we're going to come to in a minute. And so Boaz does the honorable thing. He doesn't seek to deceive anyone. He goes to this guy and says, look, you need to be aware. Naomi's back. She, she has no means to provide, but she's willing to, to, she's on hard time. She's willing to sell this parcel of land that belongs to her family. You have first refusal to buy it. And the guy says, yep, I'm in. I'll do it. I'll redeem it. I will buy the land. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. We're going to get into why he refuses in a moment. All of a sudden, Ruth's in the picture. This guy's like, whoa, drop it like it's hot. I don't want that land anymore. Not for me. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was a manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Marlon, And Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have brought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. They, they pronounce a blessing now over this marriage. Who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is worth more than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. 
Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray and then we'll get into it. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the promises we find in this passage. For what we have revealed to us about you, your love for us, your sacrificial generosity towards us. God, I pray that you would open our eyes and ears to see and hear what you would want to show us today. And God, would you be glorified as a result? We just say, Holy Spirit, please come and speak to us now for your glory. Amen. Okay. There is a lot here. <laughs> like, I, we could easily do a whole series on this chapter. We could probably do a whole teaching series just on the weird cultural aspects of this chapter. We don't have time. We need to be focused today. Uh, <laughs> As I said earlier, everything that was lost in chapter 1 is restored in this chapter in the most amazing way. Like we could get into what happens with the land and what happens with her family and what that looks like. And all of these different aspects, we don't have time to. At the start of chapter 1, we find Naomi returns to Bethlehem. And, and they all say, Naomi, she's back. And she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. Because I went away full. And I've come back empty. And that was where she was. It was this picture of brokenness and barrenness and bitterness. But as we read chapter 4, that picture is like a dim and distant memory. And what we have now is, by the conclusion of chapter 4, this amazing picture of fullness and fruitfulness. Where there was famine, this feasting. Where her family was gone her fortunes are restored and her family and her fields are fruitful once more. This is an amazing picture, but why did this come about? How did it come about? It came about because of Boaz, a redeemer. And that's the term that we're going to focus on today. What, what does it mean? Well, someone, Boaz, stepped in. And at great personal cost, made things right on Naomi's behalf. And we're going to focus on that today. But we're not just going to focus on one Redeemer. In fact, if you read it carefully, there are four Redeemers mentioned in chapter 4 of Ruth. Or at least... The fourth one's heavily hinted at, even if not mentioned explicitly. And so this, if you like, today is a tale of four redeemers. If I don't, I'm not really usually in the habit of titling sermons, but if I were to title today, I would call it a tale of four redeemers. And first up, we have the family kinsman redeemer. The man to whom Boaz goes to meet at the city gate. He's called a redeemer. He's a pretty rubbish one, as it turns out. <laughs> but that title is used of him repeatedly because that was his position. It's what he ought 
to have done. See, the people of Israel living in the promised land had experienced God's redemption. That's how they were in the promised land, right? You wind back a little bit in the story, and they were in slavery in Egypt, captive. And God redeemed them. He bought them out of slavery and led them into a promised land. They'd experienced the redeeming love of God. And in the law that he'd given them, he made it clear to them that he wanted them to be redeemers like him. And there were several ways in which it was instructed that that should play out in their society for his glory. The first was like this. We find we read about in Leviticus 25, verse 23 to 34. It won't go up on the screen. You can look it up another time. But this is the summary. is when an Israelite family became very poor. So they fell on hard times. If they had to sell their land to survive then the law to provide for them was that the nearest male relative, who would be called a kinsman redeemer, had the responsibility of rescuing them out of poverty by purchasing the land back for them and restoring it to them. This was called the redemption of property. And it was important because for them, the land, the promised land, was incredibly significant. And to lose their part in the promised land was, in a sense, to lose the inheritance that God had provided for them. It was really, really significant. Another, as if someone had become so poor, and this happens, we read about it, that they had to sell themselves into slavery, then a relative who had the means to do so had to rescue them by buying their freedom. This was another kind of redemption that they were instructed to enact. Freedom from slavery. We find about that in Leviticus 25, 47 to 55. And then finally, and this is the one that's in view most in this Book of Ruth, if a man died leaving his widow without children, that's the situation Ruth and Naomi have found themselves in, right? So Naomi's children both died. One of them, Marlon, married Ruth. And though they were married for 10 years, they had no children. She remained barren. The nearest male relative was instructed to step in. So if, it was, if he had a brother, his brother should do. If it was a cousin was maybe the closest, the nearest male relative had to step in and marry the widow and enable her to have children so that they children could inherit their father's property and keep it in the family. This is again about the land. So only the only the men inherited at that time. And if a widow was left without a son, without an heir, then the nearest male relative was instructed to marry her and ensure that there was an heir, not for himself or for his land, but for his dead relative's land. Okay? 
And so that's what's going on here. And while Boaz was related, he wasn't the closest male relative. This other man was. And as we read, we saw, didn't we? First, he seems up for it, right? He's like, yeah, I'll buy the land. Boaz says, if, if you're going to redeem it, redeem it. If not, let me know and I'll do it. And he goes, I'll redeem it. I've got the land. It seems like a shrewd business deal. Naomi is not going to be selling this land at a premium. It, it, it will be very low cost. And the guy's like, great. First refusal, like, bag some more land for myself, happy days. That's why he says yes so enthusiastically. But, as Boaz points out the catch, that Ruth is there. And this man would be obligated, if he buys the land, to marry Ruth and produce an heir. All of a sudden, he's not so keen. We noticed, didn't we? I said, you know, he just like drops the deal, dead. No, no, I'm not interested anymore. I'm good, thanks. And he uses this strange phrase. He says, I can't redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Because just Ruth was married for a decade already with no offspring. That's unusual. Like they, they hadn't just decided to kind of have some meet, have some us time first as a married couple. Like, you know, let's just get used to each other. We're like, have some us time, pursue our careers a bit, and then maybe we'll have kids. That wasn't how it worked then, okay? The fact that they'd been married for 10 years without an heir says there's something wrong. Either Marlon was the problem or Ruth was. Maybe she's barren. There's no way of knowing. If, though, she produces an heir, then what happens to this redeemer's land? Well, first, the stuff he buys from Naomi isn't his anymore. It goes to the hands of that heir. And actually, he's not considered his son either. He's considered the son of his dead relative, of Marlon. And he will have the land and he will continue Elimelech's family line. And, and the Redeemer steps out of the picture. He, he's bought the land, he's paid for it, he's produced an heir, and that's his part done. It's all cost to him and no gain at that point. And if she only produces one heir, then actually his land goes to him as well. And so he's like, man, this is a risky deal. This, I can't see the upside. This is all cost. I buy the land. That costs me. Then I have a responsibility to look after Ruth. And if she produces one heir, everything I've got goes. And even if she produces more than one, then it's still all cost to me. There's no upside. He starts off thinking, great, get some cheap land. This is, this is money in the bank. He realizes this is a costly endeavor. It isn't a good business deal. And so he jumps out. It's too risky and too costly. And in the face of this unattractive deal, he does something really weird <laughs> to us culturally. 
I don't know if you noticed it as we read through. He takes his shoe off. I'm like, maybe, maybe you, that's how business deals go down in your workplace. I don't know. Like Some of you guys, I mean, you travel a lot, Billy. Maybe you've seen some crazy stuff. Who knows? But to seal the deal, he says, I'm out. And Boaz says, okay, I'm in. I'll count the cost. I'll take it. And the guy takes his shoe off. Like, what is happening? Well, the instructions given in Deuteronomy 25 for this kind of deal, which we're not going to read today, are very specific. And they make it clear, actually, this kind of redemption of land and widow and marriage in this way are very clear. And if the relative, the redeemer, the first in line, refuses to take his dead relative's wife and produce an heir... And the elders of the city, notice Boaz got ten elders of the city around with him too. He did this properly. He knew he understood the law. He was an honorable man. And this guy knew the law too. The elders of the city are there. And if they couldn't convince him to step into his dead brother or relative's shoes, then what would happen is, is they, or actually the when the instructions are originally given in Deuteronomy 25, it assumes the widow's present. She goes to him before the elders. And if he refuses and the elders can't convince him, then she or the elders take one of his shoes off him. It sounds brutal. Spit in his face. And then from that point on, his family would be known as the family of the unsandaled. Weird insult, but would have brought incredible shame on his family from that point on because he had refused to take responsibility to care for his brother's family. He'd shown disdain towards them and rejected them and the the consequence of that is that his sandal would be removed from him. He'd be spat in his face, a huge sign of disrespect and his family would walk around with the label the family of the unsandaled. And this guy knew that. And he saved them the trouble of taking his sandal off and he, he takes it off himself and hands it over. He, he would rather the shame of that than risk his inheritance. It's interesting, isn't it? Like that's, that should help us understand what a, an unappealing prospect Ruth was. Culturally. She, she was a, a foreign widow who, in his view, brought nothing but risk to the table. And, and he would rather live with that shame than, than take the risk and count the cost and bear the responsibility. He had a lot going for him on the surface, redeemer number one. It's almost like blind date. It's like bachelor number one, redeemer number one, the kinsman. He was young, he had money, he was the nearest relative. He's the one, if you had to work out who's going to be the hero in the story, he's the one your money's on. 
On the surface, people could have argued that he looked like God's perfect provision for Ruth and Naomi in their plight. But he turned out to be no redeemer at all. He was more interested in himself. I think there's a warning for us here that I don't want us to miss. I think we need to be careful sometimes not to assume that because something looks good on the surface or looks like it's God's perfect provision for us, not to assume that it is. And jump in anyway, right? This guy looked like he was the answer on the surface, as far as everyone would have been concerned. The ideal solution to their problems. Young, eligible, the nearest relative. He ticks all the boxes. I think we often find ourselves looking at things and thinking that's, that's the solution. <laughs> like that's what I need. That's what's going to bring me redemption from this situation. That will end my loneliness or this situation for me, whatever it might be. That's, that's my way out. This guy turned out to be no redeemer at all. We need to be careful in what we place our hope in. Because God had lined up a much less obvious but altogether more amazing provision for Ruth. The redeemer number two is Boaz, a true redeemer. The costs and risk to Boaz were just as high as for the other guy. Like their situation's essentially the same. Boaz was an older man. But aside from that, the costs and risks are just the same. In fact, you could argue, because it's unproven for Boaz right now, whether he's able to have children or not, and he's a much older guy. You could argue for him the risks are even higher. But the contrast between their response is extraordinary. The first Redeemer would not accept his responsibility, but Boaz willingly took it, even though it wasn't actually rightfully his in that sense. Like the responsibility fell on the shoulders of the other guy. Like Boaz could have honorably stood back and and not intervened, and no one would have thought the less of him. The Lord did not require him to intervene, and yet he willingly stepped in counted the cost, made provision. The first redeemer was motivated by self-interest. When he thought it was just the land, he was in, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I'll redeem it. I'm in. But Boaz was motivated by love and care for Ruth and Naomi. There was a selflessness to his actions you know, some people would suggest or have tried to suggest Boaz acted in self-interest. Like cheap land and a young, beautiful bride. What's not to like? <laughs> like that's the, the inference some people would make. But I hope we're kind of already there. That This is the deal though. It's like if, and it's a big if, she produces an heir. The land won't be in his family anymore. <laughs> he pays for it 
and gets no benefit from it. We'll continue the line of Elimelech and Marlon. And it's a big if anyway, right? We already said. It's quite likely she's barren. Actually, Scripture even suggests that she's barren because you notice when they do get married and he does go into her, what does it say? The Lord gave her conception. It's the same phrase that's used a couple of other times when people have been barren and they cry out to God and God intervenes and gives them children. It's the same phrase that gets used. He takes on his responsibility to buy the land and care for Ruth and Naomi, whatever the cost. Boaz is a true redeemer, like a model of selfless love. Remember, God put these things there because he wanted his people to be like him, to act as he had acted, to love others as he had loved them. Guys, this is our call too, to count the cost, to consider others better than ourselves, not to act in self-interest, but to act in love for others, to seek opportunities to, to bring redemption to people, even when there's no benefit to us. Boaz models this brilliantly. And Ruth and Naomi were powerless to do anything about their own situation. Boaz stepped in. The same way Christ has done that for us, hasn't he? We read in Ephesians 2, from verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. I tell you, if you are dead in your trespasses, you can't do anything about your situation. You are powerless like Ruth and Naomi were powerless to do anything about their situation. And just as Boaz intervened, Christ intervened. Christ, <laughs> by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Boaz is a picture for us of Jesus in this. They could do nothing about their situation. Boaz intervened. We can do nothing about our situation before God. But Christ has stepped in. We come to our third redeemer in the story. This one's easily overlooked sometimes. Maybe not as easily as number four. But Redeemer number three is Obed, Boaz and Ruth's son. And if you noticed in the text as we read it, he is also referred to as a Redeemer. Why? Well, let's, let's just read very quickly. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And, and, and we instantly, because of the flow of the text, have thought, oh, it's about Boaz. Like he's the redeemer. He's bought the land and he's secured their inheritance. 
But then we carry on, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than seven sons, has given birth to him. Oh, like same object, same person in view, definitely not Boaz. Ruth did not give birth to Boaz. This is about this child. Why? He will be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. This baby, this precious son, remember everything that is lost in chapter 1 is restored in chapter 4. Naomi, who's lost her sons, is given this child as though he were her own. Actually, because he's the one through whom her family line, her husband's family line, is going to be continued in the land. He's like the replacement Marlon, in effect. He will make provision for her in her old age. At this point, Naomi isn't actually that old. She's old enough to have grown-up sons, but she's not like she's not drawing her pension yet. There's actually they reckon time for this young man, Obed, to grow up and to begin taking responsibility and providing for Naomi when she hits old age. And that's that's what these women are rejoicing here. He's a gift from God, an answer to her bitterness and emptiness. And significantly, this baby boy was born in Bethlehem, if we read here as well. And his birth, in the way he makes redemption, points forward to another baby who would be born in Bethlehem. One who was yet to come. We read that this baby was a gift from God. What happens legally with baby Obed is really important for how we understand the way he points forward to Jesus. I'm going to try and explain it as as simply and succinctly as I can. Remember, he is now viewed, in effect, as Marlon. A substitute in that family line to ensure their inheritance, redemption for them. So the son of healthy Boaz became the son of Marlon or sickly in order that he might redeem their family and secure their future. You see the significance of that picture? Let's carry on. This baby's birth points us forward in an amazing way to Redeemer number four from this chapter. Because in verse 17 through to 22, we get to see that he will become the grandfather of King David. You notice that there's a little family line given that leads us through. And there was another baby that would be born in Bethlehem. In the line of David, who would be a redeemer. In fact, who would be the redeemer. Jesus. And just as Obed was the son of healthy Boaz, who became the son of 
sickly Marlon in order to redeem and secure that family. The Son of God became man, stepped into the sin-sick line of Adam to rescue and redeem. Isn't that stunning? It's how God works. Remember, there was no obligation on Boaz to redeem Ruth for this son to be born, to secure the future of their family. God did not have to intervene to save you, but he chose to count the cost, to send his son, the perfect Righteous, holy Son of God stepped in to the sin-sick line of Adam in order to rescue and redeem you as a substitute to stand in your place that where there was death, there might be life. That where there was sickness, there might be health. That where there was barrenness and famine and brokenness, There might be healing and fruitfulness and wholeness. The promise of baby Obed for their family was huge, right? It meant security, provision, shame removed. There was shame that was lifted with his birth and hope restored. And the promise we have in Christ is exactly the same. To all in Adam's line who trust in Jesus, there is security, provision, shame of sin removed, and hope restored. Isn't that incredible? I want to pray for us and then then we're going to share communion.